Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors, manufacturing in upstate New York, Golden Acrylics, Williamsburg Oils, and most recently, Core Watercolors. For more information about Golden Artist Colors, visit www.goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also supported by Topo Designs, based in Denver, Colorado. They're committed to creating quality bags and clothing that stand the test of time. You can check out their products at topodesigns.com. And Sound and Vision is also brought to you by Charter Coffee House. Charter is on Graham Avenue in East Williamsburg in Brooklyn, one block from the Graham L stop. Find out more at chartercoffee.com and follow them on Instagram at charter underscore BK. Matthew Ritchie is an artist born in England who lives and works in New York City. He's exhibited internationally over the past two decades, including solo presentations at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston, the Barbican Theatre in London, the Brooklyn Academy of Music in New York, the St. Louis Art Museum in Missouri, Mass MoCA in North Adams, Massachusetts, the Contemporary Art Museum in Houston, Texas, and the Dallas Museum of Art in Texas. Matthew's work was included in the 1997 Whitney Biennial, the 2002 Sydney Biennale, the 2004 Biennial de Sao Paulo, the 2008 Seville Biennial, the Havana Biennial, and the 11th International Architecture Biennial in Venice, Italy, as well as major exhibitions at the Guggenheim Museum, the Museum of Modern Art, and SF MoMA in San Francisco. His work is in permanent collections of the Museum of Modern Art, the Guggenheim Museum, the Whitney Museum, SF MoMA, and the MIT List Visual Arts Center in Boston. He's in too many group shows to name, and he's been covered in pretty much every art publication you can think of. I visited Matthew's Midtown studio for a talk about his early days in London, shady real estate, musical collaborations, post-punk, the burning Bronx, and being a Spurs fan. Here's our conversation. Growing up, because you grew up in England, well... I grew up in London. You were born there. Yeah. How long is growing up? When did you come here? I moved here when I was 25. Oh. So I, I grew all the way up. How'd you get rid of all that accent? Um, I think it just have an ear for it. Uh, I was at college with a friend from Glasgow, and we would go up to his neighborhood in, in East Kilbride, and within like a day, people were like, I say you're, you're from around here, right? I, I've never seen you before. You picked up the vernacular like that quick. <laughs> Maybe like, you must be, you must be from here. So it's just, um, I remember I lost it when I tried to order a, a, a tomato. Oh, right. And they were like, what's that? That's the guy. Like, well, what is that? It's an imposter. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, tomato. And that was the end of it, the British accent. So, well, how was growing up there? Was it, uh, you know, a youth full of, like London proper? It's the suburbs, London, which is kind of mostly suburbs. Did you, were you a supporter of a football team? Spurs. Oh, you're a sp- For my sins. Tottenham. <laughs> Disastrous. <laughs> it was looking good. Do you still follow it? Yeah, they've had, they've improved. It was really like the, just a tragedy for the, all the time I was there. Yeah. They were like super gifted team, amazing players who just couldn't win anything. Yeah. It was a sort of well, at least you had something. 
Were you a Mets fan? <laughs> Did you carry on the tradition of... <laughs> no, I could never really get behind the Mets. It just didn't seem like a real thing. <laughs> yeah, they're not really. <laughs> they're not the real team. <laughs> and the Yankees. Ooh. Yeah, you're not a Yankees fan? Well, it's just like supporting like Verizon or something. Yeah. You're like, yeah, they are the biggest company. That's true. Right. They have a legacy. Because you're buying in bit, you know, you're... you're you're not putting a lot on the table when you become a Yankees fan. I did get to meet one of the owners of the Yankees. We were doing a project, um, looking for a site for a project, and they were going to tear down the old stadium. So I got a tour of the old stadium before it was torn down, which was fantastic because mm-hmm. no one was supposed to be in there, but she could be in there. Yeah. It was really like that's cool. New Jack City kind of thing. Yeah. It's nice when you get those behind the scenes. Yeah. I got one of the, did you ever do the UN? Yeah. We had a friend who took us back to see all that art. It's amazing. It's very cool weirdly contemporary yeah now what yeah. looked super dated right it feels yeah anyways so getting back to the yankees thing are we starting the podcast now yeah we, there's no real start <laughs> <laughs> i could take out that that part of <laughs> no but yeah we're rolling we can we can roll with it <laughs> When, remember when you're asking what I usually talk about? It's like stuff like meeting Yankees owners and mm-hmm. the good stuff <laughs> and Scottish accents. <laughs> um, but yeah, so how did you end up? Um, like, what did that look like? Was that after you did the after the uh, the whole Dallas Cowboys thing? Um, was that related at all? No, this was for a, a big performance installation that ended up going to Germany instead, or or Venice or somewhere. Uh, there's a kind of weird ecosystem around those big sort of public art performance things where it gets closer to the music industry where you're sort of, it's like a tour, you know? Yeah. You're looking for venues. It really is, right? And there's a big machine behind it. Like, yeah. it's got its own, like, you know, red paper and all that stuff. Yeah, and the budgets seem enormous, but they're consumed by, you know, publicity and the parties and the, just like a music tour. Yeah. Like you 2 when they were on the road, they were spending a million bucks a day. Right. Whether or not they were performing. Yeah. You know, just for the crew and trucks. And they're like, you're going to get this budget. And you realize. Yeah. Which 90% is going to production and promotion and, well, yeah. But you get to have your artwork in the public realm, which is a cool thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a big believer in public art. I think it's um, a shame when people get snobby about it and then also claim they're somehow doing art for the good of the world. Oh, yeah. And they're like, but, but not public art, you know, because that's kind of cheesy. Right. Which a lot of it, to be fair, is, but says so a lot of private art. That's true. That is a good point. I mean, there's a good and bad in all of it, yeah. pretty much. But good public art is amazing because it hits so many more people than the galleries do. Yes. You like, <laughs> thought, thought you were going to go against me on that one. <laughs> I did that 59th minute in uh, Times Square. Uh-huh. And I went like one time to check it out. And there were so many people looking at it. And I realized, you know, in, in the course of a one-month gallery show, there's how many people are going through there? Yeah, it's, a, it, it's an okay amount. But how many people in Times Square are looking up and seeing that work? You know, it's, it's total... And it's a different crowd. Like people there, just public art is just hitting people whether they like it or not, which is kind of fun. Whereas I feel like most of the time, gallery goers know what they're getting into. Yeah, I think it's a complex, complicated argument. I'm very much in favor of public art that 
challenges the audience and puts them in a position where they are where the information is properly contextualized and given a little depth I do think there's a danger that public art starts to feed a narrative that art is there to entertain just like a Nike ad yeah and that the gallerists then who's who have a very different role and the museums who should have a very different role see that and start to see that as an index of success and you start to hear boards of museums talking about the gate and that gives me a very like queasy feeling yeah did you use the nike ad analogy in light of did you you know the whole colin kaepernick nike ad that just came out have you seen it yeah yeah i mean kaepernick's you know an inspiration yeah but that's a that's an advertisement quote unquote that is a real you know it's a heavy message yeah and but what you know, we could have a long and very unfun conversation about neoliberalism and how it corrupts political activism by oh, use, yeah. you know, using and appropriating messaging. Right. Uh, and this could very well be just one of those things. Yeah. Where we're all like, yeah, yeah, no, no. I, I think yay, or maybe. Right. Yeah. Maybe. Oh, I think there's some special technical term for how political orders use protest as a way to release pressure. Right. And thus actually embed the system even more deeply. Oof, that's heavy. Why don't yeah. we take it back to the Spurs? <laughs> <laughs> so Just you, Spurs. You so know, you grew up the Spurs. A young a young kid in London, a Spurs fan. When did uh, creativity enter your, your world? I guess by accident. Uh, I was probably looking back really lucky to be part of the whole sort of transition in the music scene out of sort of prog rock and like 10cc and like the Jerry Rafferty you know the yeah. 70s right um, King Crimson you know really the dark days <laughs> <laughs> sorry if any of those the, are here I, I loved all that shit when I was yeah, you know, yeah, like yeah. 14 right but then it kind of started to break down into punk and I was a little too young to sort of be a punk although by the time I was interested in music, that was there was sort of the tail end of that, but it was already breaking down. And so there was this kind of sense of collapse, mm-hmm. which was a really, at the time, seemed very kind of depressing. Yeah. And oh fuck, London's shit. There were about eight artists who made money, like yeah. Francis Bacon, you know, and Lucian Freud. Mm-hmm. There, there was no concept, even when I was in art school, that anyone would actually make a living as an artist. If you're lucky. And by lucky, I meant sort of, if you had bad luck, you'd get a teaching job. And that would nail you down and a council flat. So creativity was this kind of weird world of, you know, like Derek Jarman, Taboo, The Face magazine. Yeah. It was like fashion music. Kind of punk in a way, because yeah. it wasn't like a built-in system or something. I think younger kids now leaving school feel much more like, oh, there's a professional goal here. Whereas back... Th- in that situation, it was probably like, you're just doing it. Yeah, and the initial impetus of punk was really, I think, born out of, in England, very different here, but born out of this like massive economic collapse and sense of desperation. And then post-punk was sort of like, kind of a bit lighter and more playful. It was like Toya Wilcox and all this. Yeah. Bow, wow, wow, McLaren. I mean, really, punk proper lasted like, what, two, three years? Right. And then it got musical in a way. like. Yeah, people were like, let's, this, this kind of sucks, just shouting at people and vomiting. Yeah. 
Um, so, <laughs> like, let's try and have it was. So that was kind of the broader church that I grew up yeah. in. Was like fashion, art, all kind of. So you went to art school really if you had no clue what you wanted to do with your life. That's why you went to art school. Isn't it funny though? Because when you kind of enter into it, you're just kind of catching the wave of the culture that's at that time, you know, and it's, it really shapes you, I think, kind of like where you enter the stream of it. Oh, yeah, I remember in art school, we would get these photocopies, because it was still the age of photocopies, about, of art forum, mm-hmm. and it was like articles about like Robert Smithson, and it seemed he, that he had made that work like two or three hundred years ago, <laughs> right. and it was like so different, black yeah. and white, everyone's kind of wearing black turtlenecks and staring into the middle distance beards and yeah yeah a lot of beards yeah. strange denim jackets that you really just couldn't buy yeah and turquoise jewelry connecting with nature yeah going out into enormous martian desert and then i was like in like southeast london which is just a shithole it's like where brixton <laughs> is and we would try and do these things, you know, like this kind of weird, sincere imitations of those kind of moments. Like we'd go and cut up a car. <laughs> it's like you're the urban version, <laughs> yeah. Gordon Matta Clarking it. <laughs> yeah, and you'd like bring it into the art school, and they were just like, "What the fuck are you doing? You've brought a, all these pieces of a car, and you, we didn't know. We yeah. were just kind of simulating this like very recent sort of sonic echo. Yeah, and we kind of didn't know what the and then you'd make a video piece with like lots of words, you know, like right. carefully put in on videotape. Just throwing shit to the wall and hoping <laughs> some of it sticks or, right? It's just, that was exciting times though, like when you're in school just trying things out, you know. I remember that stage of my life of being an undergraduate, Bruce Na- seeing Bruce Nauman and being like, what the, f- like, what is this, you know? he's a human water fountain, but then he's got heads on like a pole rotating. It just blew my mind. I, I was like, you can do that? And, and I feel like that was really exciting. Yeah, now it seems um, that, that I think it's probably just a problem. There's too much information for the students that I teach. They kind of don't know that it's activities are connected to a historical moment because everything seems ahistorical. So then they're kind of just simulating almost a, a random whatever happens to cross their path. And I, I don't blame them for this, or young artists in general. It's because there's just far too much yeah. information to possibly have. So I felt very fortunate, looking back, that I sort of caught the, the weird tail end of postmodernism, and it's kind of... It hadn't really cohered in England in the, the way it was here. You know, the way sort of people, David Sally or Peter Halley, were writing about it in the States, like as a kind of coherent intellectual thing. It was more just like history is this big pile, but you could still see the kind of shape of the pile. Right. And it had a beginning and it had a timeline to it. Yeah, it was like layers of piles. Yeah. And then you could sort of move things up and down. Whereas now it's just this undifferentiated fog, which is a lot harder to sort of create any kind of formal reading from. Right. And someone just came over with a stick of dynamite and blew up that pile. And it's all over the place, yeah, like it's all at once. Almost, uh, it's almost atomized, like a vapor fog. Yeah. So you can just like inhale it, but God knows what chemicals right. you're getting into. I was just talking to my class about that, like sort of lack of linearity of like under, like if you think about music, like something that's sampled now, you just hear it, and that's just is what it is. You don't think like, oh, that goes to funk, and funk came out of 
you know, blues and jazz, and that came out of this experience or whatever. It's just kind of like everything floats around now. And we were talking about vaporwave. You were saying it's like a vapor. Do you know about that genre of music? No. Vaporwave, they take like 80s soul funk and slow it down to like a really slow pace and just add some electronics over it. But it sounds like Muzak, like it's indebted to like elevator music. That sounds... And it's got a very specific visual aesthetic to it. It's pretty amazing. But it's, I think it's an in- instance of something really kind of creative that comes out of like that kind of sampling where you're just pastiching things together. But I don't think it's hyper-conscious of all the different influences that go into it. Well, best case scenario, I think if you look in the history of, say, science, you start to see in these kind of moments of atomization, say the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th, where science was sort of, people felt the history of science had come to an end. Um, But there were fundamentally unanswered questions. So if you take that into sort of music or art, it's a similar, whenever you reach a kind of dead end, that's the, I think, the interesting moment to start asking fundamental questions about structure. And even in a vapor fog, there are actually, the laws of chemistry and physics are at work. There are deeper laws. And by the atomization, you actually maybe free up a kind of larger scope of inclusion. Because the problem with the chessboard of the 20th century is that the rules got learned by a certain kind of group, and they were playing a kind of closed game. The canon, right? Even post-canon, I was, uh, when I was in California, I was reading Carolee Schneeman's letters um, and Vaughn Rayner's, and they have all these amazing archives at the Getty. And they're all, you know, this is the 70s, they're all bitching about how it's a boys club yeah. and they can't get in the door and there's like five people who are the gatekeepers. And we think of it as this moment of unbridled experimentation, but it was right. actually a kind of moment of desperation. I mean, they're asking for you know, like 500 bucks to like make an exhibition. Right. And they just can't get in. Yeah. And so what seemed like this kind of series of radical experiments was also being conducted under a kind of alternate rule system. And it's good the doors are getting blown off that and you get a kind of this this soup suddenly allows other players into the game. Yeah. I think it's easy for people who grew up before that the explosion of vapor happened to be like, well, this is the right way to learn and to be judgmental about it. And, and now it's like, well, you just don't. Like, it's just all floating around. You're not really taking anything serious or there's no real meaningful connection to any of this stuff that you're interested in. It's just like surface, which isn't the case really, you know. No, we're just, I think, every generation sort of looks back nostalgically on its, the moment of its formation. And I definitely feel I was lucky to be at that moment of transition because I, I sort of locate transition as the moment of excitement rather than some kind of very structured set of ontological relations. Yeah. Well, what was the transition from between London and coming here? How did that work out? Oh, I just, I have one of those great you know, stories of being like really stupidly lucky, but also stupidly unfortunate at the same time, like the real fool's progress. Mm -hmm. So I moved to, out of London, where I sort of received my multiple eviction notices as I was running a kind of pretty intricate, what one might call a scam. (laughs) Wait, at 14? (laughs) Did you say? No, it was 20, 25. Oh, that's right, that's right. For some reason, I thought you can't, yeah. So wait, what was this? 
Well, at the time, you could, you know, was, there was all kinds of opportunities for an enterprising young person to have multiple addresses and claim multiple kinds of welfare benefits. Uh, that was on what you would call welfare. Right. But if you were sort of, there was no computers. Yeah. So you could show up at different offices and claim different amounts. Right. Stay in different, I was squatting in three different places as well. So I had three different addresses I could get mail sent to, which I did. Yeah. You were gaming and, the system. For a while. But then eventually these very polite letters arrived <laughs> for all the money back with small paragraphs at the end threatening further action. So, so you packed up? <laughs> After those, yeah, the, the letters started to change where the first paragraph started to be the legal action. Right. And then, the, then it was the, just the demands. It seemed like a good time to move on. And plus I had totally not grasped that London was going to change into the center of the YBAs. I saw the first freeze show and was just like, what is this? And weirdly enough, the year before I had done this uh, exhibition at my art school of severed pig's heads, sort of pre-Damien Hurst, right. um, forgetting the critical ingredient of formaldehyde oh. in a box. <laughs> Very much in the Nauman yeah, the, spirit. I got ripe <laughs> real quick. Yeah, they let it. They let it stay for three days. I got to oh. give them give them credit. And it was sort of much more like there was no forethought. We went up to Smithfield Market and just bought a bunch of severed pigs' heads and brought them back on the bus. So this is your work. This is kind of what we're talking about uh, with your work at the time. Yeah, <laughs> a, a project. Yeah, it's a pretty punk. And then we sort of um, set them up without telling the. In the, in the thesis ex exhibition, that was sort of my contribution, was the day of. You Surprise! Know, <laughs> and I believe, just to add to sort of artistic credibility, we smeared some paint onto them. That makes sense. Right, you know, to like really <laughs> dignify it with right. a postmodern gesture. Right, right. <laughs> and uh, It's layered. But of course, everyone was completely high and hammered through the entire process. So yeah. we had just no directionality or thought it was utterly thoughtless kind of response is cruel gesture to the rest of the you know, other students who were like making their paintings and right plaster casts and things it was like, <laughs> you look back and you're like wow what, a, what an idiot or we stole the show <laughs> <laughs> literally <laughs> yeah exactly anyway so quite rightly they threw that out but so much of my time in england was spent in those kinds of Futile gestures. So, when did you get deported? <laughs> you can't technically be deported if you're a citizen. <laughs> it was more clear that anyway, I was just indicating how how few um, ideas I had about how to thrive. Right. It, there's that saying by Samuel Johnson: "When a man is tired of London, he's tired of life." But it was more like London was like really pretty tired of me. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of it like, had enough. Yeah. <laughs> So where did you end up? Uh, so a friend of mine was in uh, British Columbia, and uh, she, she'd gone to do an MFA program. And aforementioned one, one of my aforementioned friends from Glasgow. And so went over there to discover, to my absolute delight, that Victoria is a center, or was at the time for like hydroponic weed. Huh. So people really? just like, everybody had like tinfoil on their windows and, you know, grow lights and like this insane the, the famous what became famous in the 90s the BC bud which was just this outrageous 
So that was a little, you know, vacation from consciousness. <laughs> How long did you hit that portal? <laughs> well, when I got to Canada, it's kind of, it's, this is all part of this sort of hapless chain. I had thought, you can just move to Canada. You're British. Queen, money, same, right. same place. Same thing, same thing really, yeah. just farther north. So I got there, and a very stern guy looked at me and said, you made me count out my, my $400 Canadian. Yeah. And said, well, you can stay three weeks. <laughs> So that's that's how fast. Then you'll have no money, right? And then after that, we don't want you here. So I stayed three weeks, managed to save two hundred dollars of its living, mocking the customs guy. Uh, came back to Seattle, whereupon the guy just like stamped my passport and was like, "You're in." This was the eighty sort of an eighty-seven. Um, little little looser on the border. Totally looser. I also remember crossing the border back and thinking, oh my God, there's so much garbage everywhere. Oh, yeah. Like, it was just, this was, you know, the late 80s was not America the clean. It was yeah. a cleaning. Right. Um, so I got to Seattle, then I got a Greyhound bus ticket. At the time, there was a $99 deal. You could go oh, anywhere. anywhere in one direction for a year. So you had a year's travel on the Greyhound system, which is a pretty cheap hotel. It's a good deal. Yeah, it was a great deal. There's some colorful characters on those buses. <laughs> of which I was beginning to become one yeah. of those colorful characters who was <laughs> living on a bus. Right. <laughs> with, a, with a suitcase full of BC. If I had a suitcase, yeah. that would have been <laughs> good. <laughs> Pretty much, you know, had a backpack. Right. That was my... So I did that, zigzagged across the country, um, picking up odd jobs here and there. So you saw the country? I saw a part, the part of the country that you see from bus, the highway, yeah. bus depots, right, and the things that are around bus depots. I've been the, further away from those driving across the country. There's not that much going on. No, <laughs> it's kind of like that's where you want to be. <laughs> you venture too far away from this bus terminals, and it gets a little dicey. It's where you meet the real people. The yeah, real America. Yep. You certainly, yeah. It's amazing the number of people who are actually working cons on the buses because you hear all these conversations. Oh yeah. I would actually meet or see the same people right sort of doing what I was doing mm-hmm. but they were using it as a sort of scamming yeah like they would say so you'd hear this see this person like a week later like I saw you back in California with this same story about needing to get you know just one more stop right I just need 50 bucks yeah from X Y or Z one of them was pretending to be a nun I remember her that was this amazing I thought you were going to say I remember that guy <laughs> She had a whole story about how she was a nun. and oh, That's real bad was, karma. She was dressed really plainly, you know, like in a kind of gray skirt. It's like yeah. she looked, you could, you know, a little kind of Peter Pan collar. You right. could sort of buy it. I mean, if you didn't look too closely, yeah. that she was some kind of nun. Right. Like not a Catholic nun, but, you know, like that other kind of. Yeah. A peripheral nun. Yeah, I don't know what they are, but you know what I mean, Lutheran. Yeah. Right. So then I ended up, um, eventually, you kind of run out of the U.S., if you keep going east, so I, that's how I got to New York, when I was where I was totally broke, and that was, um, I guess, eighty-seven. Jesus, broke eighty-seven in New York City. Good times. What the hell? Like, what did? <laughs> was it the Wild West? <laughs> it was right. It still had the. I visited in eighty-two, and that was really crazy. That um, was like the. The dark days, right? Super. I remember driving. Summer Sam. Hmm. It predates me. Me too, I think. It was must have been pretty gnarly, though, at that point. I remember driving in 
uh, in somebody's car, and we came in. To, there was this, this big sign that gratified every fantasy I'd had from seeing the movies, like you know, Taxi Driver. Right. It said Bronx, and there was a burned-out car and a dead dog in the middle of the highway. And I was like, "Yes, New York." I is made like, it. It's like the Warriors. <laughs> right. That's a documentary. Yeah. You didn't hop on a city bike and go down to Starbucks. There was fucking nothing. Yeah. Then it tumbleweed, was, and and uh, and like video booths places and you know strip clubs everywhere the big thing you did to, for culture was you went to the Arcasanti store in Soho what's but that Arcasanti is this crazy arcology out in Arizona but they had a store where they made little bells and they sold them that was how they in the 70s they financed the whole arcology off the sale of bells sure I think <laughs> <laughs> anyway something like that so that's how I got to New York um, one thing led to another I eventually ended up as a building super uh, for this Irish family who had been banned from managing their own buildings because they were such terrible owners. So they could hire me because I was an illegal uh, off the books because they really weren't allowed to hire anyone. Yeah. So they hired me for some nominal sum and I got to live in one of their tragic properties eventually. Is this downtown or...? Yeah, they, they had a bunch of buildings, one of which was on the corner of Mercer Street and that was where... I suppose my first set of encounter with the art world really happened because it was right opposite Don Judd's building. and He was still alive. Mm -hmm. He would come out. And he was one of those figures from this kind of the photocopies. Yeah. So I was like, holy shit. You know, yeah, there he is. Nam June Pike was there. It was, I was like, I've arrived by total accident. Yeah, that's a... In this exact nexus of the place that I completely don't understand. Right. That's an amazing journey to get there. <laughs> There's a lot more texture to it. As I'm well. sure. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> but the, that's the, the basic map. Now, did you faux an Irish accent to get in with the Irish uh, building owners? No, they were American Irish. That wouldn't have washed oh, with right. them at all. Okay. There was this wonderful woman. She was James Taylor's ex, sort of, uh, I guess you'd say, girlfriend, and during Taylor's you know really druggy period. Yeah. And she was hired to be the their sort of boss. And she's a very theatrical, wonderful personality who liked to pretend to have heart attacks when uh, people would call up to complain about the heating not working. <laughs> it, it would hit right at that moment. <laughs> so she hired me. Yeah, no, she would literally be like, uh, you're, uh, you're killing, oh, uh, uh, and drop the phone. <laughs> and then what do you do? You're not like, I'm going to call back. and. <laughs> yeah, like the people were like, fuck, I guess, yeah. I guess we're... I'll give it a couple days. <laughs> I'll call the phone still around. <laughs> And when I became, I eventually took over her job, and I continued that tradition, hiring artists to perform repairs at magnificent incompetence, which was a great. I realized why she'd hired me was I was a sort of version of that, right? Because I actually didn't know how to do anything without the heart attacks. Yeah, I would. I would do a different sort of hyper British version of like, yeah, right. I think, but yeah, we'll get right on that. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, which I'd learned growing up in the 70s in England is you just say yes and do absolutely nothing. Right. That's the whole country ran off that. Agree and yeah. don't act. Yeah. <laughs> it's harder to go against that, you know what I mean? It's they, pretty genius. The tenants figured it out eventually and sued the hell out of me. Yeah. But fair enough. <laughs> so, well, you found yourself in the hotbed of all these, you know, that's, that's the locale at that time. Yeah. So yeah. are you making, 
Are you are you thinking about making work at this point? Or are you just thinking about? Oh no, I'd give making up a living. Any dreams of being an artist? Because right. I really I didn't really have any going to the British kind of art school. Yeah. Where you just most of my friends there went on to be like architects or fashion designers or completely not. I, I th- yeah. think one person from my year actually stuck it out as an artist out of you know seventy people. Yeah. So that wasn't a. I was just more like that kind of weird Borat figure, you know, who just shown up and was just like looking at this. It's like this is the art world. It's like in the magazine. Like right. you go to Finelli's and there's. Um, you know, Tony Schifrazi's and there's Julian Schnabel mm-hmm. and his Rolls Royce driving down Mercer Street. Yeah. Amazing. Was, did it, well, did it rekindle like a feeling of like, well, maybe I can get back into this? I mean, it must have at some point you started making work again. Or was this further down the line? It took a few years. I was still, what's that nice word people use? Working some things out. Sure. <laughs> Getting your feet under you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Yeah, things weren't. I was there was not kind of a level of competence oh, where things like studios or even apartments were really on the table. This is more of a. Do I have a couch to live on? I have to say though, the perception. I mean, because when I was in school, you came and spoke at our school, and just in thinking of your work, it seems at odds. Like, it seems like you're an organized, sort of very heady, kind of like in deep person when it comes to your work. And it's funny how <laughs> contradictory this this coming up story is to that. Yeah, I guess so the lesson for the kids out there. Don't do drugs. <laughs> Don't do drugs. <laughs> Just say no. Mixed blessing, right? You, I spent probably a decade of just like absolutely wasted time. Or was it? Right, right. Yes, it was, kids. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but you said to do what you got to do. Yeah, I was just clueless. And then eventually, like New York is, is not a place that really particularly rewards that in the long run. Like right. the attrition rate's really high and you start to get into a lot of situations where you realize you're totally out of your depth. And so is everyone around you. But the person who's got, say, a gun or a lot of heroin is going to be much more in charge of the situation than you are. Yeah. And you're like, okay, so that's like not going to, you know, I wasn't going to be a gangster. Right. It's not a long-term plan. No. And the gangsters aren't going to be gangsters. And just, this is all like downtown New York. It was empty. So these are all mostly kind of fucked up white people yeah you know like not this isn't like I lived up in Manhattan Valley and that was where like it took me like two years to get Jimmy the the dealer on my doorstep to just sort of nod right at me and I realized it was time to leave that neighborhood when my upstairs neighbor was machine gunned through the wall of their apartment oh my god as an accident you know someone else was being killed in the hallway right they were just like it just went they were in their the, kitchen oh jeez <laughs> just like yeah that's it out. time like, to move out you realize you're just and you know you're not I don't want to claim for myself any kind of like gangster side this is more like just total cluelessness yeah but the plus side of seeing all of that is you do realize at a certain point in your life you kind of have to get your shit together yeah and I would say that happened sort of like the mid early to mid 90s when I 
because by being in that neighborhood, you met a lot of artists, could go to a lot of galleries, and I started writing about people that I liked, whose shows I saw, and just, you know, looking back, very much in the kind of, wow, what a you know, weirdo guy. He's like, I like your work, I wrote this thing about you. Yeah. <laughs> Here, the, grub, the grubby sort of piece of, there's no email. You, know, you just give it, <laughs> hand it off. Yeah. Yeah. That must have been awkward. But actually, the, commu- the art community has always been extremely welcoming, I think, to support. It's support. It likes really. outsiders, or, yeah. or did then. It was very uh, porous. And there was a lot of interest in kind of people who weren't fitting the, temp- the previous template. And so by being just sort of part of that moment, that goes back to your earlier thing about like it, it really does about this kind of time in history. So 200 galleries, 250 galleries closed in 1990. Mm-hmm. So my timing was just perfect. So the whole art scene had been wiped out and you could now go into Finelli's, you know, and there was Tony Shafrazi going, what happened? Yeah. I remember him sort of almost like weeping. You know, like there were that many? 200, Did- yeah, 250 galleries closed. So that was the 80s boom, basically. Yeah, it just, just what crashed out. And it's all like West Broadway, Broadway, all down there. Yeah, by the time it was done, gr- you know, great people just yeah, vanished. gone. And of course, they, a lot of careers went with them. Right. And um, Yeah, you need a space, you know, you need that side of it. And it seemed like, so having, there was a kind of Judd, that age of the Titans was over. Then it also seemed like this wave of the kind of neo-geo, neo-expressionists, they had also crashed out. And so there was a kind of zeroing out, which, so back to that sort of idea of getting organized, there was a kind of a blank slate. And I felt inspired by that. And into that space were stepping these artists like Carl Walker, Matthew Barney, Michael Gray, Keith Edmire, who were starting to tell stories that in a way were dealing with this problem of the pile of history by trying to make up their own versions. And I think that was a kind of beginning of a transitional period that's, that seemed like something that I could get my head around. It was like, oh, now we're, gonna, now we're gonna tell stories. Was that always something you were interested in? Was that like intuitive to you? that narrative process? No, it's more a sense of incredible relief. Yeah. You know, like, oh, there is, even if the, the sort of superstructure of the master narrative is gone, and even if the kind of postmodernist, like, let's just move all the pieces around the board aimlessly has gone, that actually frees you up to tell your, your tale, yeah. no matter how ludicrous and arbitrary it is. Right. You can yeah. still begin again. And there was a kind of optimism... A very false optimism in the early 90s that the internet and the Clinton years were a kind of, I don't know, reprieve from the tyranny of Reaganism and American sort of, you know, the imperial state constantly at war. And the economic collapse, like, allowed that. And there was, you know, so Soho, you could just get these spaces. Yeah. Like 200 bucks, you could have a storefront. And they were happy to have it. So that kind of changed. That, that for a brief moment, there was this kind of weird, like, we're back. The art world's back in yeah. 
has this kind of liberty. It's almost like a, like a forest fire. You yeah. Know, it just burns everything out. A lot of stuff disappears, but then there's fertile soil for some new stuff to happen, you know. Yeah, that, that certainly seemed the model then. I think looking at the 2009 crash, I think a lot of people, myself included, expected that to happen. Yeah. And it just weirdly didn't. And now here we are, and it's, isn't it great? Yeah, well, things are cyclical, right? They're just, they mutate or something. Like, it's just different, but it's the same things happen, but in different, different avenues or something. I haven't been around long enough to really see all the cycles, I think, but that's what people tell me. <laughs> it's hard to see the forest from the trees, you know. Wise words. Yeah. <laughs> so when, when did you get set up making... I mean, was that the point in the mid-90s where you got a studio? Or, well, I guess you just lived where you worked. It sounds like space was wild and free back then. Yeah, and now. I was a building super, so that gives you access to space. Yeah. And I knew another uh, building super, Alex Ross, who worked for Julian Lethbridge. Right. And he had a building on Howard Street. Uh, and I got a one of the more vivid and sort of fun stories about that kind of time is there were just floors of this building that Julian was letting artists use so I was in one floor and then this guy from Britain showed up and it wasn't sort of like a it was like a communal space so mm -hmm. this guy shows up called Damien Hurst and he's just got like a fax machine that guy yeah that guy <laughs> and Damien Hurst just like wakes up like I'm in there like making my sort of weird efforts this is I guess like 94 mm-hmm um, at, so I'm, I'm like, can I be an artist? You know, it's like just making diagrams, basically. And Damien just shows up with a, a fax machine and gets up at like one and just starts. He's just on the phone. He's sort of walking around the same space, you know, just like, no, yeah. no, I need like 20 of the dot paintings. I need to, yeah, no, all 40 by 30. Sarchi's going to take them all. Oh, because at this point he's already, he's, he's cooking. Yeah, he's super. Yeah. Hot, but in a kind of young artist. He's still a right. very young artist. You know, he's not like... He's a YBA, not an OBA. Exactly. <laughs> and he's also... Then he starts making paintings in the space after a couple of months, which he really can't do. Like yeah. he's, he's got, but he's got assistants sort of making the dot paintings. And that's the kind of odd uh, moment where I began to probably see that there might be a future in this art business after all. Right. You know, the faxes would come in. I'd be like, fax machines. <laughs> <laughs> this is an artist who's really got his shit to Yeah, do. yeah. It's funny, right? <laughs> There's that kind of business savvy. The first time you see, I think every artist at some point opens their eyes or just sees that happen. Like, I'm sure some have moved to New York City and become Jeff Koons' assistant. Or some have a friend who just is motivated and savvy in that sense. But you see like, oh, that's part of it. You know, and some people are really good at orchestrating that part of it. Yeah, I think for Damien, it's it was always he understood in terms of that cycle of history that some of these are some of the rules that go back to Rembrandt being a you know having a gallery in his in his studio or Duchamp selling Brancusi's that it's for a living. You know, like that this is a transactional environment. And if you're not participating in the transactional environment, you're just refusing to participate. Mm 
right. sort of like saying, I'm going to be a soccer player, but I don't want to join any teams. Yeah. It's like, mm, okay, you can practice all you want. Right. Dribble away in your backyard. But this is the sport. It's not actually soccer. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I'm too good for that. Right. I'm um, taint my performance by <laughs> joining a team. and Yeah, they'll, they'll see. Yeah. They'll all see one day. Right, right. I'll play that solo World Cup. Yeah. And win. And no one watched. <laughs> so I think so. There's, there's that, and and also. The sense of a moment is often uh, more easily accessed if you embrace all of the technologies of the time. So if you make work using what's on the table now, including the structure of power relations of that time, it feels contemporary to the power structure of the time. Yeah because you're fully engaging with it, which can be done totally in opposition, like Carl Walker, I think, who's probably one of the most admirable figures of that moment, proposed a, a narrative of immense complexity using a 19th century technology of representation um, and a very like late 80s sort of theory of power and totally just nailed it. Yeah. You know, just hit everything. And that work, you look at it, today and it's like that work seems absolutely cogent and relevant right and i don't think it's because she was anticipating a cultural moment where that would be really she could carry the burden you know yeah of race relations in the 2018 right i think she was just being a brilliant artist yeah well um, conceptually it's like her work fit that mode that she was like sometimes it's all the components work really well together, not necessarily as an agenda, it just, it works out, and then everything else that's happening around it, you know, it's kind of like a perfect storm of all the stuff that comes together that makes, I think it makes it hit on more levels than it could, you know? Yeah, and I also think a, 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 sense, a sense of deeply anchoring the work into the past, yeah. no matter how arbitrary or out of sequence the past seems to be, like if you're, if we talk about that vapor or sound, sound wave kind of idea, that's a history too. That has, you know, nothing comes from nothing. Yeah. So there's always these kinds of long connective strands that, and I always think back to, you know, one of the sort of fantasies I had in the early 80s in art school was sort of like, this was very much a, kind of music and fashion driven world and I sort of imagined the art world would be like that mm -hmm. and it really isn't no most of the time <laughs> it's true it's not so but a number of my shows have dealt with collaborations with musicians at the beginning with the sort of fictional team of musicians that I put together in the early sort of like 96 I did a show which was all about this kind of imaginary super group and over the years, I've met lots and worked with lots of musicians, and that's actually sort of started to happen mm -hmm. in that this kind of... So you, one of the things you can do, I guess I'm saying with art, is by sort of throwing an anchor out to something that seems wildly disconnected from the art world. It actually provides a kind of breaking anchor that, around which you can pivot your whole practice. Yeah. Rather than getting too sucked into the sort of count, the argument that, like, Jeff Koons or Wade Guyton or Damien Hurst are, you know, the model right. because they know how to play the game. Yeah, saying more like, no, the game really doesn't. It kind of 
what matters is the articulation of its components and it's and sort of these some of the most radical and strangest moves can be the best moves yeah and sometimes collaboration can really facilitate the uh, unanticipated you know things that you can find in the process because you're you're just working with other people you know and and they always i feel like collaborating brings an element to your work that normally <clears throat> you know you just wouldn't get to by yourself obviously so it can be a really fruitful thing in your practice in like what you're doing so when did, so you started that in the early 90s or in the mid 90s working with musicians in my mind yeah that that counts <laughs> And then it took it's, me a while to actually kind of put the pieces together. It's VR before B, before it VR. Well, what's so? What what was the music connection? What, I mean, um, well, I think I just had always had this a comfort level, probably that is true, or maybe for the also the New York post punk scene, like the RISD gang, like David Byrne and people, uh, the Kitchen Crowd, then. It isn't. It doesn't seem as as coherent now. I, I think it's generally just lapsed. So I think that's this idea of throwing back an anchor in time as well as across space to a kind of moment where certain positions seem closer together yeah. than, than they do today. And so then, when you meet someone that you admire, you can refer back to this kind of common point of origin, and they kind of. Get. that's where you're starting from rather than the more known kind of thing of like an artist does a stage design yeah. or something right the prescriptive collaboration yeah yeah I mean are you so are you still doing it a lot working with musicians and yeah I collaborate with a lot of musicians I have a project opening at Rice University at the Moody Center in, in about two weeks that is an interactive about 4,000 square foot interactive space with songs by Kelly Deal, music by Evan Zaporin, and myself, and a local uh, oud musician um, called Mohammed Horo, and the Shepherd School of Music. So it's a sort of complicated... It's diverse. <laughs> yeah. It sort of takes this idea of like... All the, what do all these things have in common? Well, you know, the kind of formal structures of music. Yeah. There's a Persian idea called makam, which is a kind of systemic manipulation of some very specific older tonal structures. Um, and you can, from that, that's, that's another sort of version of the reach back. If you throw something far enough back in time, there's this common root. Yeah. So all these musicians are able to refer to this kind of common base because it's you know, 2,000 years ago, that's when music kind of got started. Right. So there's a very simple set of rules. And out of that, you can create this like super complex topological relationship and let it proliferate sort of wildly. Yeah. Well, how is it manifesting itself? So in the process, are you doing visual things based on music or music based on the visuals or is it it's, um, separate? And so is I, that stuff modal? You know what I mean? Is, or is it song based um it's sort of I, I guess this this all started about in the mid 2000s when I I did two really really three really closely related projects and they were within like an 18 month period I did a a building called the morning line that has a series of sound rooms 
and the commissioners, which is Viennese foundation called TBA 21, um, commissioned, it traveled around Europe and they commissioned different composers in every city. So we started off with four compositions from the States and four from uh, Europe. And one of the people, so some of the people I worked with were just these amazing, there's a guy called like Mark Fell, who's like a Northern European, like sound art, kind of hardcore metal, like it's mm-hmm. almost unlistenable. He has sort of fled this, the building's pretty big, like a, it's like a sort of lattice work tent of metal. And the speakers are scattered all the way through. It's 100 speakers. So when it gets going, it really gets going. Like yeah. You're inside like a belfry. So he sort of fled. So it was very antagonistic. But then there was a piece by Jonesy from Ziggurat, which mm-hmm. was like very ethereal and beautiful songs. And there was a piece by uh, Tom Willems, who's uh, mostly works with uh, dancers, with trombones, really diverse. That's, that's okay. So the idea, now it has about 40 of these compositions and as it's moved around. It's and you're curating all these people? No, I just sort of suggested the first group. Okay. And then the idea was to make an open space where yeah. I wasn't, specifically wasn't in control. Right. And while I was doing that, I was also working with these uh, much more sort of rock musicians, uh, Bryson Aaron Desner from The National, Kim and Kelly Deal from The Breeders, mm-hmm. uh, on a this... Mayan rock opera that was at BAM called The Long Count. Mm-hmm. And that was a song cycle of sort of 10 very specific songs set in an environment, costumes, and I wrote the lyrics. And But to your... And then the third piece was a, an opera based on uh, Lisa Randall's theory of gravity that she wrote the libretto for, and I did that kind of design. But... Since then, they were all kind of part of this one strategy, so they've all kind of bled into each other and exchanged parts. So it's both the idea of modularity is in music is a very rich, much richer than the art world. It's not like you, you, everything in music is modular, yeah, because everything breaks down into right. like small fragments, notes, and, yeah. But then, as soon as you assemble them into kind of lyrical structures, they become phrases. But then you can sort of relocate the phrases. And then there are kind of embedded tones underneath in the soundscape that cycle, like you might have a... So really the kind of distinctions between modular and com- fully composed mm-hmm. begin to collapse. And the project at Rice is a uh, 25,000-minute composition. Modest. <laughs> <laughs> With a compositional device. So yeah. it's taking some of the elements of a kind of Cajun... You know, like here's the soundscape, the randomness. But then saying, oh, let's step that down one more level. There is a formal rule set of relations. So this is built around these kind of dividers and there's cameras that watch. So you you can sort of make the composition Mm -hmm. by moving these screens around the room. And then there's a VR environment where you go in and there's kind of fragments of it playing in that as well. All of this is set inside of drawn and painted environment. So it's sort of nesting logics inside each other. Yeah. Very hard to describe. No, so I, I, I think <laughs> I get Did you, were you into a lot of Cage and, and Tony Conrad and Glass and Reich and all those, Xenoxis and Ferrari? Xenoxis for sure. I saw him in London. I was, and he wasn't famous at the time, so you could just go and see his stuff. I was like a super fan. I just loved the way it starts to sound like a swarm of bees as everything. Yeah 
But he's a good example because there's nothing random in Zanakis's compositions. Right, right. It just sounds like it yeah. could be totally. But he's sort of creating, it's more contingency than chaos. And as everything builds up, like the scores, those graphic scores are, are you know, beautifully organized drawings of space and time. There's an amazing show at the Drawing Center about a decade ago that had all his, draw, his drawings for his... Oh, shit, I missed that. So beautiful. Because he was trained as an architect. Yeah. And, and one of the first things, the example for that Morning Line project was he did this thing called the Phillips Pavilion. Mm-hmm. He was the designer of the soundscape and ultimately the building itself, he was on the team, became sort of his. I think it's nominally by another architect, but it's really Zanakis's work. Yeah. Well, a lot of those composers take kind of an architectural collage-like approach to building a composition, you know, which lends itself to architecture. Like one of my favorite movies is Koyana Skatsi, and that there's something that just works so well with the repetition of all those building windows and glasses composition, you know? Yeah. It just works together. Were you also in, in interested in people like uh, Marcus Pop and Microstoria Oval, like that whole computer, glitchy, abstract? It didn't really, and maybe it did come to England, but it didn't really uh, penetrate my consciousness. Well, this is, those guys are the 2000s, oh, mid 2000s, you know. Then, no, I, I think my, my attention had sort of wandered from the, um, I'm a little too weak. <laughs> so really stay with that. I got a couple of people, can I give you a little list of a couple of people you might really like? Yeah, afterwards? totally. Yeah. Did you ever hear, do you remember the band Storm and Stress? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were, it's seemingly all random, but very composed and interesting stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm a sucker for that, like the, the gradual assembly of a composition. Well, it looks like your work. Your work looks like that. I'm, I love... Thanks. I love doing... <laughs> <laughs> it, looks it looks like, like free jazz, man. <laughs> it looks like a monkey throwing shit at the wall. No complex, <laughs> organized systems with layered aesthetic components that kind of seem like they start in the mind and start to regenerate themselves into into infinity. Nice. I'll get that for my book jacket. Does that work? Can I, can I do the liner notes? <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's, that's how I've always felt, you know, in looking at your, I remember seeing that show, was it Basilico? Is that right? I mean, it was a, yeah, the did, group I show did, and you did. had a couple paintings in it and I being did. like, what the heck? Like, this is really, it felt really different and very interesting. And they weren't even that complex then. They were just sort of those shapes that we were building with some of the marker where diagrams were starting to inform, like you felt like, oh, there's something going on, but it wasn't, it didn't explode out yet, I think. But seeing those and being really interested in that and then watching the progression of, you know, you, it just looked like your mind expanding into different levels each time I would see a show. And it got more and more complicated. And then I thought to myself, seeing a show, you know, I would think it was like the late 2000s, I'm thinking, is he all right? <laughs> Which show was that? <laughs> was it Rosen, right? Was it the one with the gigantic... It wasn't there an animated element to it? And it was just... I mean, there was just stuff everywhere. There was like a giant sculpture. There were, there were drawings on paintings and paintings on drawings. And I thought to myself, is, is he... Is everything okay? <laughs> I thought you must be exhausted. Yeah, I mean, I think that the notion well, I mean, I'm looking back I think there's two kinds of things that I'm one is this idea of information like 
on my very first show, I, I've always liked the idea that you sort of take care of the information environment around a show as well as the yeah the show itself. So it's like, is the press release, you know, who gives a fuck about the press? It's like it should be something, a piece of writing that comes from the artist. It's, a, it's all an invitation. You know, if you're constructing this invitation to participate in someone's brain, and this is not something that comes from me. This goes back, you know, 100 years to Jarry and like the, the beginning of 20th century art. It's all about the conditions under which the art is even examined yeah. or thought about. The text, the light box, the lighting, the sound. It's all kind of an opportunity to make the discourse richer. Because the, So the tagline of this first show had a wall graphic that said everything is information. Mm-hmm. And I don't think at the time I realized just how difficult a term and sort of expression and also how accurate that was going to be because if you think about that in conjunction with painting the act and painting drawing diagramming all have very different kind of information horizons and but they're all very close they can collapse into one another and so some artists choose to just kind of stabilize their practice around a version of this is about right and it looks pretty much like one of these. Yeah. And I don't really have that set of breaks. And so I'm, I can write a book about the theory of diagrams and then I can start, but it just kind of keeps going from that point onwards into like a 200 foot drawing of all history's diagrams. Yeah. Or, and think that that creates a interesting and yet also quite difficult idea of there's not really a media specificity and there's not really a kind of information management specificity so that notion of collapse that you're talking about in Mm -hmm. a show becomes both a a goal and a trap I'm always like did I get it all in yeah did I get everything and right. that, that particular show, I think, with the thing hanging from the scene, that was about that kind of moment of the Iraq war post 9-11. And I was, you know, trying to capture this sense of overwhelming geological and sort of ecological, political catastrophe. Systems that, and, yeah, all that. Which turned out to be exactly right on. Yeah. Well, that same trap that you're talking about, that did I get everything and the, the complexity of that, I think the converse happens because if you like to speak in the dialogue of the default or like, let's say the music equivalent would be like the pop song. Like I want to write the song that, you know, can connect to, I'm not going to ostracize, like Cage is going to relate to certain people. Do you know what I mean? And then it's going to ostracize a lot of, of people who aren't in, indebted to understanding the lineage of what his compositions are about and what he's trying to do. So the, the flip side is the people who are working within that conventional structure of press release or hanging eight paintings or whatever, is that it could just be digested too quickly and, and default to other ideas about what, you know, what it's supposed to mean based on that kind of like pop format. Do you know what I mean? I think you're, in other words, you're screwed either way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I totally agree. And in terms of, I don't think there's any, there's a, on the board of, you know, of infinite moves there's only the moves you're going to make right you know it's not that it's predestined it's like, but you are, you have certain kinds of impulses and you have to kind of honor those impulses or as an artist your kind of exploratory practice which is i think of sort of the job of artists is to 
in the larger sense, kind of explore the perimeter of being, but that's really, it can only ever be your being. Yeah. So you can try and step it up and include as much as possible. You'd be as inclusive in that, but you're still limited to your own frame of reference in the end. So you just got to kind of acknowledge that and just kind of work on it. Right. Yeah. And then you're, then you're there. But that does lead you to shows like that one where you're sort of like, oh, I guess I see. That's. I love that show. <laughs> Thanks. I, I really did. It was overwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> but in the same way, like I went to My Bloody Valentine concert when I was really young and I really liked the show, but it was loud as hell. Like I couldn't stay in the room because it was so, you know, loud and it just got inside of you and it. It was this ethereal music that just assaulted your eardrums, you know what I mean? And it, was, it made you think about music in a different way, which I think is a very powerful thing to do, you know what I mean? I hope so. I mean, my preference in music is always for, to go, you know, I would always rather go somewhere and hear someone going for it, no matter how, at the stone or something, right. than some very well-mannered and organized sort of pop concert where yeah. you sort of know where you're, like Bell and Sebastian actually fell asleep at, Right. Bell and Sebastian concert. Yeah, I never listened to Bell and Sebastian. I mean, I listened to them back in the Arab Strap, like those days. And, and, but the, and I can see the beauty of the simplicity or the, oh, yeah. the quietness of it. But yeah, I have a hard time really getting into it. It's like Beck, you know? Yeah. You're Beck and you're, wow, that's a really well-made song. Right. Wow, I never want to hear it again. Yeah. You feel like you have heard it. But it kind of seems like a certain painting that could be on a collector's wall. Right. You're like, wow, that's just really well made. Yeah. And your eye just glazes off the surface. Shit, I think I do that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. i got to get back into the studio. <laughs> I, one of my favorite um, genres of art is Japanese prints, ukiyo-e. And I love the simplicity and the daily. Like, you know, the, the Hiroshige one where the papers are flying in the wind of the bridge? There's just something so beautiful and like day-to-day about that stuff that, that I love. And I think I just drawn to that kind of, that Sim- simplicity and beauty and kind of looking at the daily world. My favorite genre of the ukiyo is the Hiroshige, the Okuniyoshi, these crazy monster prints oh yeah it's like yeah. thousands of ghosts and goblins right. all sort of fucking each other and like climb desperately climbing over a giant skeleton to eat like a fisherman or something you would so <laughs> yeah there we are that's beautiful though that's there's something for all right <laughs> yeah to back to that point of professionalization artists become similarly trapped into a kind of narrative of their own practice and it's i think it's a very conscious effort to constantly broaden your practice yeah. is the tendencies of, in any field are to sort of narrow it and specialize. Keep narrow, specialize, and you end up with a, a sort of hyper-formalism, which you become very good at, and then that becomes a, a marketable skill. Right. And so the whole system begins to just right become kind of a self-fulfilling problem. But it creates this kind of unease with wildly diverse practices. Everything has to be kind of segregated. Yeah. Tidy. Mm-hmm. And that Packageable, leads, you know. Yeah, and, and ultimately that form becomes exclusionary. And I have a, a good friend who teaches at a community college and he took his students to, he was like, I'm going to teach, he's teaching art. Mm-hmm. It's a two-year program. It's like, I'm taking him to all the museums. And he noticed that they really weren't happy in the museums. They weren't getting anything of the feeling that he thought he was going to be yeah. delivering this right, great experience right. and he said 
why don't it doesn't seem to be going quite the way I planned. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, these places are not for people like us. Yeah, like this, every detail of the architecture is designed to intimidate right. and exclude. You know, the all the all white walls, the all the look of it. Every, yeah. every part of it is designed to make you uncomfortable. Right. And you know, when I was up at. Uh, Gavin Brown's new gallery, I noticed with enormous pleasure that he you know, had a sign on the street, like a sandwich sign in mm-hmm. Spanish, yeah. saying free entry, because you're not going to know that it's free. Right. And the people at the front desk spoke Spanish. Yeah. And we're like, because it's like, we're, he wants everyone to be able to come into the space and yeah. understand. You have to make enormous gestures outwards. And I think so my installation practice and the music practice and this kind of transdisciplinary involvement with scientists and architects is, is often about an impulse to kind of break the kind of outer perimeter of art, art thinking, which tends to want to retreat, to sort of say, well, isn't it possible instead to create some kind of s- stepping forward, which of course, as and correctly, is sort of interpreted as as a kind of, I think it's a kind of naive optimism that it's always going to work. Yeah, You're not defaulting. You know not giving people something. You know the wall, the intellectual wall is going to work. Right. But the effort to communicate across disciplines is often going to fail and produce sort of embarrassing or my bloody Valentine concerts is going to yeah. be too loud or too quiet or too stupid or too rich or like that show, yeah. too sad. But I kind of feel like that effort is one of the things that artists are actually allowed to do. Yeah. So you believe in trying to get that across. Yeah. And you're allowed to kind of be weird. So if, if we're not, who is? Yeah. It's, it's like being a Spurs fan. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> but you have Sir Harry of Kane on your team. It should be. This is another time. <laughs> That's true. That's true. It was a legendary. Like no one who was a Spurs fan could believe it was that bad? But the streak would just continue. Like, it just seemed oh. like, no, I mean, it's like, the, it's like everyone knew this was an amazing team. Yeah. It was like, how can it not? It wasn't like they were the bad team. Right, right. They were the great players of the they day. They just didn't. You're like, again, what the? F- <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. So what do, you ha- what do you have coming up? So I've got this project at the Moody Center. Is my I'm just installing next week. Yeah. It's been a, probably two years of work to put it together it's a huge enterprise did you time moving to after getting that workout do you know what I mean like so you could sort of take a breath do you take a breath in between or do you get right back into it uh, no time moving for that and as New York's been sort of changing so different from that time with the, the cheap studios and the cheap apartments that now it's almost unrecognizable um, Andrea Rosen closing yeah which was just sad because she's a friend and yeah done so much for me I can see why she would want to get out of the art world in the Trump era yeah all or many of her clients were sort of revealed as the villains of the piece <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> which is also something we all have to sort of yeah. deal with now it's like, right you know, that kind of Clintonian optimism then the Bush kind of imperialism and the Obama kind of moment of like well maybe it can be fixed maybe this guy can fix it and now we're kind of I think reverting to a kind of more like oh this is yeah oh right this still exists this is the American cycle it's like a step and then another step in the opposite direction 
So that's, I think, a moment of reckoning. Must be very challenging for younger artists. Yes. I don't, there's no envy in that, navigating those waters. (laughs) So, you know, like, Henry Kravis is going to, like, the the board of MoMA by your work, they're all Trump's biggest supporters. I just (laughs) threw up in my mouth a little bit. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Not not all of them, but but a, a good number of them. And if they didn't support Trump, they supported McCain. You know, they're like, right. like oh, degrees of... It's a complicated world. I, I don't <laughs> think there's a lot of complexity in that, or shades of gray. Because if you look at where it's all ended up, it's like... And that's true. It turns out that wasn't, wasn't really that complicated. It's one of the arguments that is made at the higher levels is it's too complicated for lesser models to understand. Right. People like us, we just don't get it. Yeah. I think we get it. Yeah, no, it's a, we get it. <laughs> I think we're really getting it right now, right in <laughs> yeah. the teeth. Yeah. We're, we're getting in a FedEx bag. <laughs> yeah. And you kind of um, have to kind of adjust your moral compass back to maybe it's more like the Borgias. Right. You know, which didn't stop Raphael, Michelangelo, yeah. Da Vinci, and all these incredible people making amazing art. Well, they had to make work, right? You yeah. gotta... It's like the guy, you know, on who won't play soccer on the team. It's like sometimes you got to get in there to just make it happen. But the idea of a kind of benign patronage is a a lot more complex, I think, than it was even 15 years ago. Right. Uh, Where you could sort of convince yourself that this was all going to work out okay somehow. Yeah. On that note... (laughs) Well, actually, no, I would say that's a, that's a great moment because it's, you were talking about the forest fire that burns everything down. I think we're at, at one of those interstitial moments is just sort of, you can see the flames starting to flicker around your ankles. Yeah. And it's a fantastic moment for art. It's not easy and especially unpleasant if you're one of the trees. Right. That's got to go. Yeah. But larger cycle, right? Long term. Long term. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks Thanks for taking all this time to talk to me today. Oh, my pleasure. Anything left that you feel you, you didn't? Yeah, there's a lot, but... <laughs> Give me one more. One more for the road. One more for the road. Well, who are you listening to now in the studio? Like, what's your audio input? Um, what have you been into? Well... Just all the kind of usual suspects like Kendrick Lamar, mm-hmm. uh, St. Vincent. I mean, it's like, I love that album St. Vincent did with David Byrne. Oh, yeah. Uh, for some reason, I, I didn't hear it when it came out. You know, you sort of hear something, but you don't really hear it. Yeah. And I just uh, heard then it. Then you find it, and you're like, oh, wow. This is really good. Yeah. And yeah, Kendrick Lamar, I've really been kind of, it took me a while. Like, like a lot of things, you're sort of like, I respect it, but suddenly weirdly turned into kind of super love, which I wasn't expecting yeah. at all. Kamasi Washington, do you like his record? Yeah. And Thundercat is really good. Thundercat, that's all my students love Thundercat. Yeah. So I have to kind of pretend that Flying I'm Flying Lotus. Yeah, all that exactly. <laughs> right. The, the driving music. Right. <laughs> as I think of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and. Guilty secret, Rihanna. Oh, there's nothing guilty about that. Okay, good. That's good. I mean, I have 11 year old kid, so I'm listening to more pop than I ever listened to. And I'm, you know, this Bieber isn't so bad. Oh, 
<laughs> That's my son is into Portugal, the man. Oh right, yeah. I'm like, you know, all right. This is actually pretty, pretty good. Yeah, I can. I it's can a good work, hook. I can work with this. Right, right. It's not. It's not about. It's not all bad. <laughs> all right. So, as far as people seeing your work, you don't do social media. Are you a social media guy? No, not really. Yeah. So the gallery, your website, gallery site. Yeah, I'm working with uh, James, James Cohen. Cohen yeah. They have. They will have all the information on the Moody Show. Um, and the, I think the Moody and will take care of it. There's a there's a choreographer called Hope Moore who's doing a, a week long residency. So we're gonna have I think a lot of. It's a sort of an open performance that lasts a week yeah. as part of this three month work. So the sound work lasts three months. There's a dance work that lasts a week. There's all these kinds of nested experiences. So not that anyone will be in Texas, but if you are <laughs> listening to this in Texas, I know some people in Texas. Then come on by. Yeah, that's great, man. So uh, thanks again for taking all this time. My pleasure. It's great to chat. Yes. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. Sound and Vision is recorded and edited by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find images I take from the studios at soundandvision.com. And you can donate to the podcast, grab a Sound and Vision tote, and learn more about the show at the website. Please leave a review on iTunes and rate the podcast. It helps a lot. And you can find more about my work at paintchanger.com. I'll have work coming up at Expo Chicago with Miles McHenry Gallery. This weekend, I also am premiering a new animation that I've been working on in collaboration with um, Nazca Lines, who's doing the music for it. It's in a show where artists collaborate with people outside of their given medium and work together on a piece. The show's called Color Compositions. Uh, that opens this weekend at the Garrison Art Center. It's curated by Marilyn Dittenfast and uh, should be a cool show. So if you're in Garrison, New York this weekend, check it out. Thank you all for listening and supporting the podcast. <laughs>